injustice and oppression, God's solution. You see, we don't have to to look far in our world in which we live to recognize that certainly injustice and oppression is a problem. We see in North America in the recent months many groups rising up to oppose racism, a form of oppression. We know in the Middle East there are many countries that struggle with their governments who are oppressing their people. And in many different places in the earth we know that this is a problem. And so this evening we want to look at what is God's solution to this problem. And we're going to really focus through the scriptures because oppression and injustice, they're not new. It's not something new that man is struggling with, and we're going to see that this evening. And so what we want to do tonight is first just quickly define our terms. Define what is injustice, what is oppression. And then we're going to focus a great deal of our time looking at oppression specifically in the Bible. And and what does God's word have to say? And what does it reveal to us about oppression? And of course, we want to talk about God's solution and the wonderful message of hope that the the Bible contains. And then finally, we want to look at, well, what does this mean for us? Why are we here this evening? Why are we talking about subjects like this? Let's take some practical things away from our talk this evening so that we might better ourselves, so that we might be better servants to our God. So what is injustice? Well, quite simply put, the the Oxford Dictionary says it's the absence of justice, unjustice. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary says it's the lack of fairness or justice. And and finally, dictionary.com says not being fair or reasonable to another party. And so injustice is actually quite a large umbrella. There's a lot of things that fall under injustice, simply not being fair to someone. Oppression is a little bit more specific. Merriam-Webster defines it as unjust or cruel exercise of authority or power. And dictionary.com says it's the exercise of authority or power in a burdensome, cruel, or unjust manner. And so what we see, actually, is that oppression is a form of injustice. It is injustice that's specific to using one's power or authority to mistreat another person or or group or individual. And so as we've said, we're going to focus more on oppression tonight. And so we don't have to look too far in our Bibles. If you'll just come with me to Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, because we see this idea of oppression begin, start to begin to, to unfold and reveal itself in the early chapters of our scriptures. And so we're reminded then just quickly that, of course, when God created the heavens and the earth and all the things that are therein, in Genesis chapter 1, we know that he created them and he saw those things and it was very good, it says there in Genesis. And in verse 28 of Genesis chapter 1, God had created man, and he gives man an instruction. He says, be fruitful and multiply. 
and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And so God gives mankind dominion. That word dominion, it it has the idea of, of power or rulership. But you see, God never intended man to be cruel or, or corrupt with his creation. And so we know that in the process of time, man falls and he sins. We know that the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 deceived Eve and she partook of the, the fruit of the knowledge, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so man now knew what evil was contrary to the good that God had established. And if you actually look in Genesis chapter 2, in in verse 15, it says, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. The word dress, it means to to serve or to tend to the garden and, and keep it. It means to guard it. They were to protect the garden. And so it was never God's intention that man would have rulership the way that we see rulership in the world today that is full of corruption and fraud and coercion. And so in the process of time, we come over to Genesis chapter 4. Adam and Eve have children. They have Cain and Abel. Cain was the firstborn. And in Genesis chapter 4, we'll look at the first several verses of this chapter. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of, of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and unto his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And so sadly, we have the first murder in the history of humankind. And you see God's instruction to Cain here. He really presented him with the two options that Cain had before him. If you do well, if you repent, if you recognize that what you have offered is not acceptable to me, Cain, and if you choose to offer what is acceptable, God says, I will accept you. Will you not be accepted, says the Lord? And then he says, if you do not well, sin is crouching at the door. And so there was this decision that Cain could make. 
And God says, choose to rule over that desire, that, that, those emotions that were welling up within him. He says, you must rule over that. And Cain failed to do that, and, and he, he kills his brother. And so we see from the very beginning, mankind resorted to violence to protect their ideals and their position and their status in the world. You see, Cain didn't like being told that he wasn't accepted. And he let those emotions take control of him. Well, we come forward then into Genesis chapter 6, and we see that this had become a universal problem among mankind. This, this problem of, of violence and corruption we see in Genesis chapter 6, this is the time period now of Noah. Beginning at verse 12, Genesis 6, God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And so man continued in his violence to try to gain status, to try to, try to elevate himself, to try to put and subjugate other people below them. And so God sent the flood, and we know that all of mankind was destroyed in that flood, save Noah and his family and, and the animals that were preserved in the ark. And so God, in Genesis chapter 9, he tries to reinstate man. It was almost as if he was trying to restart. You see, in Genesis 9 verse 1, he gives them the same instruction to Noah and to his sons. He says, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. The same instruction that he gave in Genesis chapter 1. But this time he's actually even more specific. You see, in this covenant that he makes with Noah and his family, Look down at verse 5, Genesis chapter 9. Surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man. At the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And so there is a specific instruction that there would be no more violence. There was to be no more killing, no more death. And he says, if you choose to shed a man's blood, then your life, your blood, will be required. Now just make a note of that in your mind, because as we look more and more into this topic of oppression, we'll see that this truly is precisely what happens in the cycle of oppression. Well, sadly, it doesn't take long, friends, if we just look over into Genesis chapter 10. Another man would arise who was actually the great-grandson of Noah himself, and his name was Nimrod. We see in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 9, uh, verse 8, Cush begat Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. 
And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And so when we think about someone who's mighty, a mighty one, that word actually means powerful. It implies some sort of warrior. To be mighty, you, you have to be elevated above someone else. For someone to view you as mighty, that means someone else is probably weaker. And you see here at the end of verse 9 where it says that Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, that word before in the original, or it should read, in the face of the Lord. And so here was a man that was going to challenge God, that was going to rise up in the face of Almighty God, who was going to try to establish his own kingdom, his own dominion. And to do so, he was going to have to oppress other people. And we know that this is precisely what happens because we have history. You see, verse 11, Genesis 10. Out of that land went forth Asher and builded Nineveh and Kala. The same is a great city. Well, Nineveh, friends, became the capital city of the first world empire, the Assyrian Empire. And we'll speak more to that in just a moment. Come over to Genesis chapter, Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel. And we see again this thinking now that Nimrod has put forward we see in verse 2, Genesis 11, it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there and they said one to another, go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar and they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And so you see man's intention. They wanted to now build this tower to elevate themselves to the heavens to almost literally rise up in the face of Almighty God. And they wanted to make a name for themselves. That word means appellation. It implies honor or authority. And so when man begins to pursue these types of things, oppression begins. This is a quote from a Jewish historian, Flavius Josephus, and he writes in his book, his first book, Antiquities of the Jews. Now it was Nimrod who excited them to such an affront and contempt of God. He was the grandson of Ham, the son of Noah, a bold man, and of great strength of hand. He persuaded them not to ascribe it to God as if it were through his means that they were happy but to believe that it was through their own courage which procured that happiness. He also gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God, but to bring them into a constant dependence on his power. 
He changed the government to tyranny. If you were to look up the very definition of tyranny, it literally means a cruel and oppressive style of government. And what he sought was the people to depend on his power, on his physical strength and might as a hunter, as a warrior. And so this mindset would begin. And the Assyrian Empire would come into existence eventually from that very land which Nimrod had established. And we know the Assyrians, they were a cruel people. They preyed on the weak. The very definition of oppression. They had power, they had authority, and so they would take captive the weak of the nations. They would mistreat the children and, and the women. They would make slaves, they would torture, they would kill all in the name of establishing more authority and more power to gain more wealth and more might. So what we see God does in Scripture is he ends in Genesis 11 with this story about the Tower of Babel and this oppressive type of thinking. And in the very next chapter, God reveals to us another man the man Abram, which we know would later be called Abraham. And so we'll read here in Genesis chapter 12. Verse 2, God said to Abraham, I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. You see, in this covenant that God makes here with Abraham, he doesn't talk about giving him might and power and authority and wealth and status. It's simply just a blessing. Blessing from Almighty God. And so these two types of thinking are established. Thinking under Nimrod, the fleshly thinking that would continue to build systems and organizations that would try to establish power and thus oppress the weak people. And God would call Abraham out of that same system. He called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, which was a subsidy of Babylon, to bless the nations. All families, all nations would be blessed in Abraham if they chose to affili affiliate themselves with this man. And so already we can see God was trying to establish some sort of solution to this type of thinking. Well, we know that God would give his people, the Israelites, various laws, as we have recorded throughout Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, laws that also try to protect these types of people. Thou shalt not kill, of course, was there. Thou shalt not steal. Give honor to your father and your mother. If you find your enemy's ox, return it to them. Don't exact interest from one that is poor. And the list goes on. These laws tried to make provision for the weak among the nation. 
the, the poor, the widow, the fatherless, the stranger, the foreigner, someone that wasn't from their land, the elderly. It's, it's riddled throughout Exodus and Leviticus. Let's just look at a few of the passages. If you come with me to Exodus chapter 22. Exodus chapter 22, verse 21. Thou shalt neither vex a stranger nor oppress them, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Ye shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. And so you see, God wanted to make sure that these types of people, the weak among the nation, would be provided for and that they were not treated, mistreated, Let's go to Leviticus chapter 19. I really would love to spend time going through. There's, there's so many passages. We just don't have the time this evening. But Leviticus 19, and we'll look at verse 33 through 36. It says there, If a stranger sojourn with thee in your land, you shall not wrong him. But the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you. And thou shalt love him as thyself, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so there was provision all the way back, the beginning of the history of of Israel and of God's people, that if someone chose to come out of another nation, to come out of an oppressive system, let's say, and to join and affiliate themselves with the descendants of Abraham, and the covenant that was given to him, that they were to be protected, that they were to be considered as one of them, and that they were to love them as themselves. And so, of course, it echoes into the New Testament, doesn't it? When our Lord Jesus Christ talks about loving thy neighbor as thyself. And so, quite clearly, God has always intended that there would be provision for the stranger, for for someone that maybe was from a different country, for someone who maybe was of a different race. Maybe they spoke a different language. Perhaps they looked different. If they chose to associate themselves with the people of God and the commandments that God had given them, they would be loved and they were to be accepted. Well, we've put Nebuchadnezzar's image on the screen because this will fast-track us through history. We know that Assyria was before Babylon, and we've already talked about Assyria. And Babylon really was no different and no better. They took control of the Assyrian Empire through brute force, through bloodshed and through violence. And they, too, would prey on weaker nations, They would take other nations into captivity. They would make them slaves. They would force them to believe in their religion, to accept their ideals, their culture. In fact, in the prophets, we see that Babylon considered themselves and and tried to elevate themselves to the Most High God. In several passages throughout the prophets, we see where Babylon, the narrative says, I am and there is none else. 
And so again, we see that lust that mankind has for power and authority. And that's precisely what this Babylonian empire stood for. They wanted to be, as if it were, God on earth. And they became a symbol of violence, as we see through the prophecies of Scripture. Well, we know that the Medes and the Persians would eventually conquer Babylon. And of course, they wouldn't do it too nicely either. There was much bloodshed and violence, as Persia would usurp the authority of Babylon, and then they would become the oppressor. But you see, once they became the oppressor, they would then begin to oppress other people until Greece would come along and, and they didn't like being oppressed. And so they would rise up and build a military and begin to conquer the Medes and the Persians, specifically Persia. And so the oppressed became once more the oppressor until Rome came along. Now Rome was a little bit smarter. Of course, they did it mostly through military might, but they also used a lot of coercion and corruption to gain this authority and power over the then known world. And so we can see how this just continued down through history until we come to our day and age, friends. It's cut off on the screen, but there should be feet of iron and clay. And what do we see in our world today? Well, we see, still see injustice and oppression. We still see the, the governments of this world, the companies, the organizations, the systems that are put in place. Organizations and systems that have great authority and power and how they use it to mistreat, to exclude certain people. And so the problem is that man continues down this same path. And it's a perpetual cycle. In order to stop oppression, violence, more violence, more fraud, more corruption, more coercion is needed to usurp the authority of an oppressor. And so when that system comes into place, there's a new oppressed people that will eventually rise up. And so it's just this vicious cycle that mankind cannot get out of because he is always striving after power and authority. He is always looking to protect his place in the world. He's concerned with himself. And so God would send his son. God sent his son to stop this cycle to show that there was another way. And, and Jesus perfectly manifested God's character, just as God had intended right from the beginning of time. He manifested goodness, love, patience, truth, humility. These are all in direct contrast to that thinking of the flesh, that, that thinking of oppression, of lifting oneself up, of, of power and of authority, of wealth. And the good news for us, friends, is that Christ is going to return to establish a new kingdom 
And it's going to be ruled, but it's not going to be ruled with violence and corruption and, and, and fraud. It will be ruled with righteousness, justice, equity. And we know this because Christ, when he came to the earth in his first advent, he was the perfect king. He was the perfect man. He was the perfect sacrifice. He never oppressed anyone. He had the power and the authority to do what he pleased. But he chose rather to be humble and to give his life for his brethren. What greater king could one have? Luke chapter 4, 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, this was the very purpose of Christ's first advent, to set at liberty those who were oppressed, to heal the brokenhearted, to heal the blind, to lift these types of people up, the weak among the nation. Come over to Matthew chapter 4. Because Christ would certainly face temptation in his life. And we know the power that Christ had and the ability that he would have had to really set up his kingdom if he wanted to at that specific time. So Matthew chapter 4, we know, records the temptations of our Lord. It says in verse 1, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. And so the first temptation was a temptation to try to get Christ to show his authority over the stones, to show that he had the power to be able to change those stones into bread. The next temptation, the tempter takes Christ to the pinnacle of the temple, and he says, cast yourself off the pinnacle of the temple, and the angels will take care of you. And so again, it's a temptation for Christ to reveal his power, the power that he had over all things. If he would just throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple, his power and his might would be seen and be known. And so when that didn't work, the tempter then showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, you can have all of this. You can have all of this glory, all of this power, all of this authority over all things if you would bow down to the tempter. You see, that is the very mindset of mankind. The very mindset of an oppressor is to show your might, to show your, your rulership, your authority, your power, to seek glory. And Christ resisted all of these things because he knew that his father's very intent with him was to rid the world of this type of thinking 
And it wasn't about bringing glory and honor to him. It was about manifesting God's character to show the, the holiness, the love, the patience, the humility, the character of Almighty God. And it was to bring God glory. And so Christ would establish this new way, simply in the way that he lived his life, showing love, finding those weak among the nations, accepting this, the publican, the sinner, the stranger. He did all of those things throughout his life. Often commented about the widows. He was, he was concerned for them. The children, his love for them. We see that the Jews wanted Christ to establish his kingdom in his first advent. We see that in John 16. They wanted Christ to, to set up his kingdom, to take the throne, to rid Rome of its power and its authority, and to take control. You see, again, it's that oppressive thinking. His own apostles had this thinking. We recall the story in Luke 9 when they come to the Samaritan city and the Samaritans wouldn't receive them and they sent them away. And his disciples say to Christ, will you not bring down fire from heaven as Elijah did and consume them? And it says there in Luke 9 verse 55, Christ turned and rebuked them and said, ye know not what manner of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. See, Christ understood that his kingdom was not yet to be established. There was still much work to be done, and he still had to be crucified as that perfect lamb, as that perfect sacrifice, to show that he would be the perfect king that would rule with justice and equity, love and peace. And so they would crucify Christ, wouldn't they? The Jews and the Romans. And the reason they did that is because they were losing their power and authority. You see, they at that time were the oppressors. And Christ, by showing forth God's character of love, humility, patience, he was starting to gain his own following, his own authority. And you see, they were concerned with this. John 11, verses 45 through 48. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. You see what they were concerned with? It was their place, their status in the world. And so the very thinking all the way back to Cain is the exact same. Cain was worried about losing his place, his place of respect. And the, and the Jews and the Pharisees in this case, they were concerned that Christ was going, that the Romans were going to come and take away 
their, their status, their position, their, their power, their authority that they had over the people. A people that we know they oppressed in many different ways. And so Christ was crucified. And it was in his death and his resurrection that this new way would be opened. That there would be a new hope. And so we come forward to today and we've alluded to the various forms of oppression that we see in our world today. In the not so distant past, we know that there has been racism, classism, which is oppression that's based on economic status, the rich and the poor. Do we treat someone differently because they're not as wealthy as us? Do we make jokes about them? Ageism, where we treat someone differently because they're perhaps elderly or, or perhaps they're young. Looksism, where we oppress someone, we mistreat them based on, on how they look. And of course, we know that religious oppression still certainly exists today in other nations, where men and women are not able to read the Bible. They're not allowed to come to a knowledge of the truth. And they are oppressed by the governments that are in place to follow their religious practices. And there's many, many other examples of oppression that we see in our world today. I did just a quick search under the news. And within seconds, I found various headlines about oppression. Boris Johnson's idea of freedom is a form of oppression. Groups rally against oppression of various communities around the world. Why does ageism persist in recruitment? We are ignoring looksism, and it isn't right. Why you should address workplace classism now? Lindsey Graham says Biden is a deer in headlights when it comes to standing up to oppression. And what's remarkable of this is all of these articles are just in the last two months. Man clearly knows and understands that this is a severe issue. It's a severe problem in the world in which we live. Most recently, we had the example of the children in the residential schools in Canada. And it's everywhere today, friends. But God has given us this message of hope. His son came. He lived that perfect life. He was crucified that we might have hope. Galatians 3, verses 28 and 29 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so for those who would seek to come to a knowledge of, of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, and who would seek to follow after Christ's example of living a life of obedience, of humility, of love, 
patience. Then it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor, if you're male or female. We can become one in Christ Jesus. And if we are Christ, then are we Abraham's seed? And we, we have that allusion back to Abraham the faithful, who we know it said there in Genesis that all families of the earth would be blessed in him if we would but follow after his example of faith. You see, there is no exclusion in God's kingdom. There will be no oppression. Because God will be king. He will be the mighty one. And mankind will no more attempt to elevate himself. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Jesus came to his disciples and he says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so his instruction to his disciples, his instruction to us, friends, young people, brothers and sisters, is to make disciples of all nations. It does not matter where people are from. It does not matter what race they might be, what language they might speak. If they would come to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity and in truth, we must love them as ourselves. It's a wonderful passage in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. Once again, Jesus calls his disciples to him and he says, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So you see, the Lord Jesus Christ laid down his very life as a minister. And that word, it means an, a, an attendant, a servant. And so we must take up this mindset of being servants one to another. Because when we think about ourselves, and when we're concerned with the status and the position that we hold in life, then we begin to pursue other things. We begin to pursue wealth, honor, glory, authority, whatever that might be. But if we humble ourselves as Christ did and submit ourselves as servants one to another, then we will be blessed. And so, friends, we must learn to do good. We must seek justice. 
correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. And so, yes, we all sin. We all have sinned. We will continue to sin. But there is opportunity, there's time left for us to seek justice, to when we see oppression, to correct it, to try to reach out to those who are weak among us, to support them, to tend and to care for them so that we might be accepted into the kingdom when the Lord returns. So friends, we've seen this idea of oppression down through history. This idea that man has to elevate himself, to try to create authority and power for himself. And he does so in the very face of Almighty God. And if our thinking is that way, then surely we will perish. But if we take up the mind of Christ and follow the example that he lived, watching and waiting as his servants, being servants one to another, looking out for those who are weak among us, then there is hope by his grace and mercy to enter into the kingdom age. And that passage in Revelation chapter 7 that we read this evening is a depiction of that very time period when the Lord Jesus Christ is on his throne and when his subjects are before him. If you just turn back there now, Revelation 7, and we'll read that passage again. Beginning at verse 9. This I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations, of all kindreds, of all people, of all tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell down before the throne on their faces and worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. You see where the emphasis lies in the kingdom age. It's not about mankind. It never has been. It's about giving God the glory and the honor that is due to him. And if we're able to do that in the lives which we lead now, then we can be part of this wonderful kingdom. It says in verse 16, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat, for the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and lead them into living fountains of waters. 
and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And so we'll just conclude with the words of our closing hymn this evening. Hymn 285, if you wanted to follow along. Thy kingdom come, O God. Thy rule, O Christ, begin. Break with the iron rod the tyrannies of sin. Bring quick thy reign of peace. Bring purity and love. Then shall all hatred cease. Bring joy from heaven above. We pray thee, Lord, arise and manifest thy might. Revive our longing eyes which languish for the sight. O haste the promised time when war shall be no more. Oppression, lust, and crime shall flee thy face before. O'er Gentile lands afar, thick darkness broodeth yet. Arise, O morning star, arise and never set.